those words are still hard to process. I, I'm familiar with them. I even understand the good that happened in that moment. Uh, but it still seems like it shouldn't have happened. Anybody understand what I'm feeling or thinking there? Um, the one who came to rescue God's people is helplessly suffering and dying on a cross. It still seems wrong or maybe backward or, or even like a mistake. But what really happened? I mean, is this just a case of a good leader who ticked off the wrong people who decided to crucify him and all of a sudden he's caught by surprise? Is this one of those cases where Jesus is trying to come up with another plan and hatches this idea about a resurrection? Sort of like, I'll show them. You, know, you may have gotten the first word by killing me, but you just wait till I show you the resurrection. Then you're going to be really amazed. Is this just a case of God taking lemons and making lemonade? And he just sort of on the fly is turning bad things into something good. Well, I think as we look at the scripture this morning, we are going to see, and I hope that you begin to acknowledge that how we think about this moment in history matters a great deal. And unfortunately, this dreadful day is a day we don't often talk about. Oh, sure, we love to talk about the little baby in the manger, the kindness and tenderness that we find in that story, the miraculous birth of Jesus, and and we celebrate that, and rightfully so. And then we've got the empty tomb and the resurrection, an important day for sure, the ultimate reminder of how God conquered how Jesus conquered and continues to conquer death. But the cross? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would just recognize that brutal crucifixion is not what we would have in mind for our Messiah. And yet, as I stated, I believe that how we think about this moment in history matters a great deal. I think we could even say that everything we've done up to this point in Open Here, our daily Bible reading, the preaching that we've done on Sunday morning, is leading to this very moment, this very moment in history. This is recorded by every gospel writer. We're going to focus in on the book of John. So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, Tom has read a couple of verses of that. We're going to look in John chapter 19 at his account of this painful day. As you're turning there, let me suggest three things that I believe we will see that John wants to make make very clear in his account of the crucifixion. One is that it was all according to plan. Two is that the plan had already been revealed. And three is that the plan was completed. Look with me in beginning in verse 16. The scripture says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate wrote, also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather the man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now this moment, no doubt, feels like a horrible mistake. And we just have to recognize we've, we've skipped the part about Jesus being betrayed by a friend, suffering a mock trial, being flogged to the point of where he's not recognizable. And to add insult to injury, Pilate nails this sign to the cross. I think this is like Pilate's final attempt at verbal abuse to Jesus. But probably more significantly for Pilate, it's his way of getting back at the Jewish leaders for, for putting this decision on them. It's like he's really writing on the sign, Rome has killed your leader. And, and as we see in the text there, the religious leaders don't like what he's written. Can't you just imagine that moment? No, 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 no. We don't want you to write, I, he is the king of the Jews. He said he's the king of the Jews but it had already been hung. And John's telling of this moment in the story is ironic. I mean, he does not want us to miss the irony of this moment. John, as you read through in your daily reading, if you're going through open here, we'll be reading the book of John in the next couple of weeks. Uh, this morning we read John chapter 5. We'll be reading through the book of John, and throughout this book we will be seeing common, frequent times that John uses double meaning, double entendre, and irony to illustrate the uniqueness of what Jesus, has ha- what Jesus is doing. And John does not want us to miss the irony of this moment. For here's what would happen. In that day, there would be a sign written with the name of the person and the crime that they committed, and it would be nailed to the cross. So that as people were passing by, it was a way of crime, of deterring crime. You would see that person there, you would see what they did, and you would cross, they're thinking you would put in your mind, I definitely don't want to do that. And so Pilate has done this, and in a way to sort of mock Jesus and throw it back to the leaders, the religious leaders, he writes, King of the Jews, and he actually gets it right. My mind goes places as I'm reading and studying, and one of the things I wondered this week is, Would the disciples ever sit around and tell this story and laugh about the fact that Pilate wrote this out, the king of the Jews? The the humor in it, that here he is intending bad and actually writes the right thing. And if they did, and I don't know that it happened, but if they did, I can promise you one thing, that they never laughed about the brutal physical pain that Jesus suffered on the cross. As the makers of the movie The Passion of the Christ portrayed, this was violence at its worst form. It is thought that crucifixion was the most brutal form of execution ever invented. It's only three words in the text. They crucified him. But let's never sanitize this moment and forget that the cross means violence pain, shame, death, 
and yes, separation from God. They literally nailed Jesus to the cross. Large nails through his wrists and ankles. I'm guessing some of you have a replica of one of those nails as a decoration in your home. And may we never forget the pain that that would have inflicted as it crushed through the muscles and ligaments and tendons in ways that I don't know that I could endure. And as this happened, it would leave the person being crucified literally hanging by the nails on their arms, on their feet. And sort of a way to inflict even more pain, they would commonly put a little seat on the cross. You may have seen this on some crosses. It's a little uh, place where they would lean up against that. You might think, oh, well, that's nice of them to give him a seat so they can sit on it. No, it's the other way. It actually was to meant to prolong because eventually a person would come to the place where they, the pain of suffocation because you had to push up or pull up in order to be able to allow your lungs to breathe. And eventually the pain of suffocation would become less than the pain of the wrist and the arm, or the wrist and the ankles, and you would just give up. And so to prolong that, they had the seat that make this crucifixion last hours, sometimes days, of agony and pain. And this is our Savior dying on this cross. Three words, they crucified him. Now, Although it's hard for us to understand, put yourself in the shoes of those followers who were there on that day. I have to think that it was impossible for them to fully comprehend what was going on at this moment. This had to be a mistake, but it was not. And I think John wants to be very clear that this was all according to plan. To understand this, I think we have to look back in John's gospel just a bit. For example, last Sunday morning, if you were here with us, we looked at that amazing miracle, the first miracle, the first sign that Jesus gave us when he turned water into wine at the wedding feast. If you remember the story, Jesus' mother, Mary, came to him and said, they're out of wine. And Jesus responds back to her. He says, my hour has not yet come. I so appreciated Tom last week helping us reorient ourselves to what this hour was all about. For much of my life, I have thought that it was just simply that Jesus wasn't ready to do miracles yet, that there was like a plan in place where at some point he would start doing miracles. But as Tom pointed out, this hour here is pointing to a future moment in history, the coming day of his death by crucifixion. As you read through the book of John, look for it. John will use this word hour throughout his gospel, to point to this moment in history. You'll read two stories in the coming week, in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, where the anger toward Jesus is growing to such a point that they are ready to kill him. But John lets us know that they're not able to because his hour has not yet come. But when we get to John 12, and if you want to turn your pages back a few pages to John chapter 12, Jesus will say for the first time, that it is now time. If you look at verse 27 in John chapter 12, Jesus has now entered Jerusalem. 
And he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus is saying, here I am. They're coming to get me. What am I going to say? No, I don't think I want to do this. I wouldn't do that because this is the very reason that I came. Jesus knew this was coming, and although he did not look forward to the pain ahead, it had to be done. It was all according to plan. And from John 12 forward, the sound of the march to this moment in history will get louder and louder. In the first verse of chapter 13, Jesus will tell his disciples that the hour has come as he gathers together with them. In John 16, he will tell them the hour is coming and that when it comes, they will be scattered and go to their own homes. And when we get to that familiar scene of Jesus praying in the garden, found in John 17, it's no wonder that Jesus at that moment says, I finished everything you sent me to do. There's really only one thing left on the list. My hour has come. This terrible, wonderful day was no surprise to Jesus. And John wants to make make it clear to each of us that it happened exactly according to plan. Now, just in case you're thinking that this was just a secret plan that existed between Jesus and God, Jesus and the Father, let's just be clear, this wasn't. This plan has been revealed throughout scriptures, which brings us to what I believe is the second point that John wants to make sure we don't miss, and that is that the plan had been revealed. We're back to John 19 now. Look with me at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now you've got to think that the job of an executioner in the age of crucifixion came with very few bright spots. You with me on that? But the custom was that the executioners were able to receive the clothing of the people that they were executing. This is what's happening here. There's only one small problem. There are four executioners, and Jesus is wearing five pieces of clothing. So what do we do with the fifth piece? This tunic. You can see the scripture says that they considered... Well, we, we could tear it, but then it's not worth anything because they tear it. So they do what anybody, I think, would do to decide this important moment. They break out the Yahtzee game. Now, I actually thought you might laugh a little bit more, but I recognized it would be awkward because you don't expect a joke at this point. But I want you to feel the tension that John has written into the story. Here is Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering, dying, feeling the pain and the brutality of what's been inflicted on him, and John writes about a dice game? Why? Does he just want us to think or believe that the executioners are insensitive and evil, or is there more going on here? 
Well, let's be clear. This is not about the executioners. John wants to make sure that we know that this plan had already been revealed and chooses to not leave us wondering about a possible hidden meaning. You know, sometimes in Scripture, it's not that clear, but here it is. Look at the end of verse 24. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This scripture John quotes is from Psalm 22, a psalm of David written a thousand years ago. If you want to, turn there to Psalm 22. It's in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 22, I want you to, I want you to look here. There are four sections of Psalm 22 that are referred to by the gospel writers as they tell of the crucifixion. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1, you might recognize these familiar words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew uses these words, or Matthew records these words spoken by Jesus on the cross. Look at verse 7 and 8. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. These words are almost used in exact form by Matthew as he writes about what happens to Jesus and the people speaking to him as he's being crucified. And then look at verse 18. It says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. All four gospel writers make a direct, direct link back to Psalm 22 in the retelling of the, their retelling of the crucifixion. All four of them. John introduces Psalm 22 with this phrase. He said, this was to fulfill the Scriptures. It's, it's John's way of saying this plan had already been revealed to us. It's happening according to plan. The plan began to unfold in the Garden of Eden when God said to the serpent that one of Eve's offspring would defeat him. Although he would bruise his heel, he would cause him some pain. And from that point forward, the scriptures would point to a rescuer to come. If you remember back a few months ago, we looked at the prophet Isaiah, and in, specifically in Isaiah's beautiful writing in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, where Isaiah told us that this rescuer would be betrayed and hated and, yes, even crucified. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. And there are four times in John 19 where John describes that Jesus' death was a fulfillment of the Scriptures. In verse 23 and 28 and 36 and 37, John wants to make sure that we know that this is all been revealed, and it's happening according to plan. I think John wants us to know one more thing, though, that this plan was completed. Is there anybody here who's a to-do list person, likes to-do lists? Okay, I see some hands. Thank you, Larry, for helping me on this. Uh, I I want to admit to you that I am a reluctant to-do list person. Um... Mainly I'm telling you reluctant because Sharon's here uh, in the first service. I, she knows that I'm not quite up to her level of to-do list. But we all 
um, not we all, because we all don't do it, I am a person who likes lists. And for 30 years, I have existed with a perpetual to-do list. For 30 years, has never been empty. Uh, it started on a Palm device, the very first Palm device, for those of you that are old enough to remember this. And that to-do list has carried over from device to device to today, where I have things sitting on that to-do list. And although I've been doing it for 30 years, there is still a certain joy that comes in that moment where I push the device and tell it that I am done with that moment. Anybody relate? I don't know if it's a device you push or if it's a box you check or you scratch it off or you wad it up and throw it in the trash can. There is a joy we find from completed lists. And yes, I have even been known to write an item on a list that I've already completed. (laughs) You've done it too, right? That's why you're laughing, just so that I can feel the joy of done, completed. But when we come to verse 28, I think this is the moment where Jesus checks the box. He checks the box on what he was sent to do. His hour is now here. Look with me at verse 28. We heard Tom read it. Earlier, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You might remember how John's gospel began In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And now, here in John 19, we have the other bookend. John records these words of Jesus. It's done. It's finished. But this begs a question. What is finished? Jesus is now hanging on a cross, dead. I mean, shouldn't he have waited till after the resurrection to check the box? Wouldn't it have been, it is finished, have been better for him to have declared as he sat with his disciples after the resurrection by the seashore eating grilled fish? Wouldn't that have been a better it is finished moment? Don't you just want to sort of say, excuse me, Jesus, I, I, I know the story. I kind of know where this is going. And you kind of have some more work to do. So we have to ask here, is this a premature check of the box? Or are we missing something? As I mentioned, I think how we think about this moment in history matters a great deal. At the heart of this question is, what what is finished? What did the crucifixion accomplish? Throughout, the history, there, throughout history, there have been three primary responses to this. You could think of these three by thinking of the figure of the cross. If you think of the cross pointing down, you have that the crucifixion, the death of Jesus leads to the de- defeat of Satan. It breaks the power of sin and death. You think of the crossbars pointing horizontally. It tells us that the death of Jesus shows us how much God loves us, and sets before us an example to follow. And these both are true. But when Jesus says, it is finished, what is he saying? I mean, it's hard at this moment to say that he's defeated death. It's hard to say that at this moment, 
A more, this moral example would be anything, would be something anybody would want to follow. So that leads us to the third point, the third way the crucifixion has been understood, and it is pointing upwards. This is the belief that the death of Jesus makes it possible for us once again to be in a right relationship with God because his death on the cross paid the penalty for man's sinfulness. And at this point, I recognize I just lost some of you. Because you just can't buy the idea that God is a God who would demand the payment of death, of blood, much less the blood and death of his son. But think with me for a moment. Although we may have trouble articulating this or even thinking it through, we all want a God who is a God of justice. A God who punishes wrongdoing, wrong thinking, who punishes sinfulness, don't we? If we really logically work this through, we all want a God who is just. Unless, of course, it's my sin, then in which case I'm all for the God of grace, right? And if we're willing to admit this, that we want a God who is a God of justice, a God who would be angry at sin, who would be angry at evil, we all now have a problem because we all know what's inside of us and we all know what comes out. We may be good at hiding it, but we know, don't we? We too are sinful people who will never live up to God's standard and therefore the wrath of God, the anger of God, the justice of God while we may wish that it is pointed at someone else, it is pointed directly at us. And we have no hope outside of a moment like this, in which case the cross becomes something that we celebrate. Paul writes of this finished work of Christ in his magnificent letter to the Romans. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a big word warning here, propitiation by his blood, means literally a payment by his death, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus' death makes new life possible. And I know for many of you here this morning, you have placed your faith in this finished work of Christ. And for you, this day, this moment in history is something to remember and reflect upon. And so this morning, before we continue on, I want us just to stop. And partake and share in communion together to take some time to reflect and remember this moment. And I don't want us to rush through this. There's more for us to talk through, but first, Randy's going to come and he's going to play. There will be words on the screen to help us reflect on the hymn that he is playing. And it provides us an opportunity to pray and to reflect and to remember this amazing day and the sacrifice of this day. 
After the song, we invite all who have put their hope and trust in this finished work of Christ to come forward and gather around communion tables in groups of four to six. The scriptures tell us that when we gather around the communion table, we actually proclaim the Lord's death. We are retelling this story over and over until he comes again. Now, for those of you that are new here at Christ Community, here when we do communion, we practice open communion, which means you do not have to be a member of our church to come. We invite you to come to the table as if you have placed your trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone. Now, after we've reflected during the song, come to the table around you, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and partake. And friends, remember, no one took Jesus' life. He gave it freely. And we don't just take communion. We receive it as the gift that it is. And as it comes to this moment, if you'd rather sit at your place and pray and reflect, do that. If you prefer this tangible expression in remembrance of what he did for you, for me, for us, come to the table and do it. Don't hurry through your reflection on this well-planned day. As we continue this morning, let me suggest three truths that I believe we can hold on to as we reflect and remember Jesus' death on the cross. It's important for us to remember this, that God has a plan for good. The cross, if there's ever any story that tells this, the cross tells it, that God has a plan for good. If he has a plan for what seemed to be the most horrible day in history, the brutal execution of the Messiah, is it possible that when we are in the midst of our bad days, or months, or yes, even years, that maybe he has a plan for our good that we do not yet understand. And let me just go ahead and answer it clearly for you. He does. And John 19 tells us that. We can ground our hope here in John 19. Now, we may not like what's happening right now, the circumstances that we're experiencing, but God is in control and has a plan that one day points to ultimate good, life as it was meant to be. You see, the death of Christ clearly shows us this, that God has a plan. And even when it comes, we're in the midst of something hopeless and tragic, his purposes can be and are still being carried out. So if you find yourself there this morning, maybe in the midst of a moment in your life where you're wondering if it, it just doesn't make sense. And how do I process this? Let me just encourage you to ground your hope in God's good planning. He is in control. Next, I believe this John 19, the crucifixion story, points us to this second truth, that God will do anything for our good. In our call to worship, we read this and you're probably familiar with it. The scriptures tell us that there is no demonstration of love that is greater than a person laying down his life for another person. And yet, even with the reality of the crucifixion fresh in our face and knowing and having confidence that he did that for me, he did that for you, he did that for us, we often question God's love, don't we? 
oh sure, we hold to the belief that he loves the whole world. We can probably recite John 3.16. We teach it to our children. We, we we're familiar with it. But we often struggle with this truth that he loves me. And by me there, I'm not meaning that he loves me, as in Kevin Harlan, that he loves you, that he loves us. But understanding what happened on the cross, the intricate planning behind it for our good, how can we question whether God loves us? I mean, this would be the, as we question, it's the very worst case of what have you done for me lately. Yes, God will do anything for our good, but here's the problem with this reality. And is that he perfectly knows the plan for our good, and we don't. I got to admit, this is the place where it begins to break down for me. And as I struggled and wrestled through this this week, this is the place that I, I have the biggest questions because I want to know the plan. I, I, I prefer to know what's coming and how it's going to unfold, and I, I want to be able to see that. And yet I have to just step back and recognize he loves me, and I don't know, but he does. And part of our sinfulness and brokenness is that we always want more. We want it quicker, and we want it easier. We want more stuff, more happiness, more money, more friends, quicker results, quicker growth, quicker satisfaction, easier choices, easier relationships, easier vocations. But unfortunately, the kingdom of God is turned upside down, and oftentimes it's described as less and slow and difficult. And when we experience this, less and slow and difficult. We focus on the problem, on the difficulty, on that moment, what we do not have instead of what God has given us. So in the face of those realities in your life, friends, let me just encourage you to reflect on what he did for you on the cross and to practice this discipline of gratitude To quote the Apostle Paul, he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Finally, I think that the cross points us to this truth, that not only will God do anything for your good, God has done everything for your good. Everything as in it is finished. Now, although we may verbally affirm that Jesus paid it all, we sing that song and we, we, we speak those words, the truth is that we often live as if that's not the case. We live as if it's the work of Jesus, what he did on the cross, plus fill in the blank. Maybe you have a hard time forgiving yourself for something you've done in your past and just don't feel like there's any way that he could forgive that. You have to pay up just a little bit, and so you live as if it's the death of Jesus, plus being a good person or a few good deeds or, or serving in a certain place. Or maybe it's the opposite happens, and you begin to think that there's no way you could ever repay, and you slip further and further into this place of despair. 
living as if it's Jesus plus something that you'll never be able to do. And you find absolutely no rest. Or maybe it's Jesus plus the approval of others. Maybe it's the approval of friends at your school or your neighbors, your, your co-workers. Maybe you're looking for that friend that would speak the good things about you and they, you find them laughing and you wonder if the joke's about you and you, you find yourself anxiously wondering what others are thinking about you or saying about you. And you question if anyone loves you, even God. I mean, here's the thing in this community we sit in, this place where we sit today. We are a culture, a community of overachievers. We have a hard time accepting something so amazing for which we did nothing to earn or deserve. It's been given to us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Nothing we can do to deserve it. We didn't do anything. Even our service to God and to the church. I mean, I agree with Alan. You don't need to pray about serving in that first grade class. But let's be clear that if your reason for doing that is because it's Jesus plus something, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. I'm not saying that serving God is not important. We should do that. Seeking to live for him in right ways is important. But it's a question, what's at the heart of our service? What's at the heart of our lifestyle? It should be a response to his love, not an attempt to try to earn it or deserve it. As I studied and prepared this week and spent time in this text and understanding the truths behind it, I became convicted and, and concerned about the subtlety behind the way we, and by we I mean me too, add in things to the gospel. So let me ask you just this morning, do you believe the work that Christ did on the cross was enough? What are the systems that you're building around that, the plus systems to try to earn your way, however subtle they may be? And this is the difficulty of, as I prepare it, there's no way I can get at that. I just asked the Lord this week to convict us to make those clear. The good news is that we don't have to do anything. We simply have to believe and trust that he's done it all. Period. This is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the way we try to add to this finished work. And in so doing, communicate to you that we don't believe it was really finished. Lord, we pause now and ask that you would convict us. Bring to mind the ways we do this. Lord, make us people who trust in your love. Forgive us for the ways we've doubted it. Build our faith to trust the plans that you have for us, plans for good, even when they don't feel good in the moment. Lord, most of all, thank you for sending your son to die on our behalf. We didn't 
still don't and never will deserve that kind of gift, but you gave it anyway. Lord, I, I feel compelled to pray this morning for those who are here who have never placed their trust in you for their salvation. Lord, may you open their eyes to their need for a rescuer and the goodness of this finished work you've done for us. Lord, and lead them to trust in you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.